I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, and that if you do, you will turn to Matthew 7. I'm going to read verse 12 again in just a moment. There was a Roman emperor named Alexander Severus who ruled from AD 222 to 235, reportedly not a Christian, not a believer in Christ. And he was a big fan of today's text. In fact, Emperor Severus was so much a fan that he is the one that's actually credited for the colloquial expression that today's text commonly now has attached to it. Because one day, Emperor Severus ordered that the words of Matthew 7.12 be inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber. And thus, the phrase associated with this verse, perhaps even the heading in your Bible, the golden rule. Let's read it again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. These are the words of the Lord. This is the smallest text that we've tackled so far in our series in the Unexpected Kingdom, and it's also the last text that we'll look at together before this summer's Summer in Psalms series, which we've done over the last three years and are going to do again this summer and next until we've done all five books of the Psalms. And as you know, I've already talked about it during Life in the Body, but perhaps you had to step out for a moment. Our leadership team offered me two extra weeks of vacation for this year to be able to take the whole month of June off uh, for my family and to have some significant time for rest and, and recharging and reconnecting with one another. So you won't see me in this pulpit again until July, Lord willing, but I'm, I'm grateful to God for the gifting of the men I mentioned earlier who will be preaching the word in the Psalms. And then in fact, in July, we are going to have mission partners uh, here with us. Jared and Sharon Kessner are scheduled to be with us the second week of July. He may be preaching for us then. We'll see. I haven't confirmed all that with him yet. Just depends on what would serve him and his family most. So this is the last passage of our Matthew study until the fall. But in this singular verse, we find profound, challenging, and life-giving spiritual food as we continue to consider Jesus' teaching on what kingdom righteousness looks like, what it looks like to be his followers, and what he requires from kingdom citizens. So praise God for this verse, and praise God for this whole sermon of Jesus's. Jesus is calling in this verse for a kind of action. He says, you notice right there in the middle of the passage, to do also to them. That's a command. And it's a command that has to do with an action. He's talking about doing something. And of course, from the rest of Jesus' sermon, it's evident that Jesus is most concerned with who people are not just with what they do. And yet, here, he does give a call to action. He does here give a command. And I'd like to make three observations this morning about this singular 
command, and the first comes straight from the text. It's this. Jesus' command summarizes the Jewish law. You see, Jesus says it himself. Right at the end of the verse. This is the law and the prophets. And so Jesus' command to do to others what you would want done to you is, according to him, a kind of summary of the law and the prophets. Just let that sit for a moment. You might have some yeah buts going on in your head, but just let that sit for a moment. You want to know what the whole idea of the law and the prophets is? Jesus has an answer for you. What you want done to you, do to others. According to Jesus, in a way, that's how you could summarize the Old Testament. The old covenant requirements for the people of God. What he expects from his people. Just do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. You read Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch as we call it. Jesus says, you'll notice over and over again a recurring theme. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. And in fact, if you think one of those Pentateuch books is sticking out in your mind right now, Leviticus, potentially just being a book of boring requirements for how to do a a sacrifice the right way, you're wrong. Look at Leviticus 19, 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Leviticus. And that's just at the end of a whole section on how to treat each other with love, compassion, mercy, justice, generosity, honesty, dignity, and impartiality. That's straight out of Leviticus 19. But then if you were to turn to the prophets, look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the minor prophets that several of our young children have gotten very good at reciting, and I'm very proud of all of you for what you've been showing us these last couple of months. You'll see the same thing. God requires people to treat others with the selfless love with which they want to be treated. The same kind of love that he, God, has showed to them, even though they were not deserving. And in fact, that God holds them accountable for whether or not they fulfill this requirement. And of course, you'll observe that Jesus isn't saying that this specific phrase that we call the golden rule is exactly how you summarize every specific meticulous requirement in the law, requirements for different kinds of sacrifices or the kinds of materials that were required for the building of the tabernacle or even the call to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what Jesus is saying is that this principle of love for neighbor as you love yourself is at the heart of all the ethical and interpersonal and community and social requirements of the law and the prophets. And perhaps you know this isn't the only time Jesus would talk about the importance of how we treat each other. Turn over perhaps just a few pages to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, reading verse 34 and following. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, which is kind of funny. They're like, yes, he got those Sadducees. Let's go talk to him. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend, there's that phrase, all the law and the prophets. And of course, this is supported by the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament as well. If you look at the screen, you'll see Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, where Paul says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul says similar things in Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in James chapter 2, verse 8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. By the way, I find it interesting that James calls it the royal law. Sounds sort of similar to golden rule. So when Jesus said that the whole Jewish law could be summed up with the words, do to others what you'd want them to do to you, what he's saying is in a way highly radical, but it's also totally consistent with the teaching of the Old Testament and even with the teaching of the New Testament that would follow it after he ascended. Perhaps you have heard this verse or the idea of the golden rule many times in your life. And as a result, hearing it read this morning, you don't feel quite an edge to it. But this is what Jesus is commanding. He's commanding that if you're ever wondering what you should think, what you should say, what you should do towards someone, ask yourself what you would want that person to think or say or do to you if your roles were reversed. And then do that thing. You can think of it this way, asking yourself, what are some things I wish people would do for me? I should go and do those things for someone. Or even more specifically, what do you wish a certain person or group of people would do or say and think towards you? So then do and say and think those exact same things to them. You see, it does kind of have a bit of an edge. It is radical, consistent with the rest of this great sermon of, of Jesus. Because, you know, self-love today is not lacking. It's its own kind of epidemic. But self-love has really never been lacking. Clearly, this has always been the case because the law specifies as you love yourself. So it just assumes that people love themselves just fine. Now, let me be clear. Please hear me say this clearly. You do need to care about your health. You do need to care about mental health, physical health, emotional or psychological health. So don't hear me saying that you shouldn't care in any way about yourself. No, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been given that body and that mind and heart to be used for the glory of God. So take care of it. 
Don't burn yourself out. Schedule downtime and guard it. God created a pattern of Sabbath rest for his people, and that principle is still there for us today. So I'm not saying that all of what many people today refer to as self-care is bad, but I am saying that how much people pay attention to their own self-care in comparison to how little they pay attention to others' care is a bit of an embarrassing indictment on the selfish, sinful nature of the human race. He says to treat others the way you want to be treated or love your neighbor as you love yourself. So just pondering that for a minute, how do you think we stack up as a society as a whole according to this measurement? Or as a church? Or even, indeed, as just individuals? I mean, think about how many U.S. legislators actually care about promoting and upholding laws that are concerned with the well-being of their constituents more than they care about maintaining their own power or keeping their job. Think about how many manufacturers in our world have at the forefront of their minds the best interest of the people that their products are going to, the people for whom services are being rendered rather than just getting the best profit margin, or even as consumers just caring more about getting the best bang for our buck Getting the nicest stuff we can get. I mean, do you think that we devote the same amount of attention and time and effort to our luxurious possessions that we all have, to maintaining our standard of living, and on our own future goals and endeavors, just as much as we do about the orphans in this nation, around the world? or about the foster care system right here in Adams County, about the impoverished around us in the Denver metro area, about widows in this church, about victims in our society of abuse and trafficking, about victims of true injustice, whether related to ethnicity or class or age or anything else, the question of justice goes so much farther than just ethnicity. Caring about vulnerable children, in schools or in volatile homes? How do you think we stack up? See, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that on the whole, and often as individuals, we are more characterized by self-care than others' care. And so while, yes, I am saying here, there is a proper place for taking care of yourself for the sake of the glory of God, for the good of your family, for the furtherance of the gospel. We need to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. And that's where my second observation comes in here. It's that Jesus' command is actually harder than it seems. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Some of you have been hearing that phrase since you were little kids, and it just rattles off the tongue. But it's harder than it seems. It's a small verse. It's a simple, pithy phrase that's been repeated by believers and unbelievers alike for over 2,000 years, including Emperor Severus, who put it up in his house. It's a pretty basic idea. Just treat people the way you want to be treated. But in reality, it's a lot harder to live than you might think. You know, interestingly, the way that this verse this 
this phrase particularly here is structured is not totally original to Jesus. This idea of doing to people what you would want them to do to you. We don't know this for sure. It's possible that Jesus was referencing in that statement an idea that was already culturally familiar to some of his listeners, although he put it differently. In around 20 BC, the famous Jewish rabbi Hillel was brought a question from a prospective student asking him about how to summarize the whole Old Testament law. And Rabbi Hillel in 20 BC said, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the law. All the rest is commentary. But you know, 20 BC wasn't actually the first time that idea appeared either. The apocryphal book of Tobit coming before Rabbi Hillel, has these words in Tobit 4.15, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. Now, neither of these sources are inspired by Scripture, but I, I, I list them just to provide context to Jesus' words because what Jesus states in our passage for today is on the one hand very similar to what Rabbi Hillel and the apocryphal book of Tobit says, but actually, on the other hand, it's got quite a different spin, quite a different angle doesn't it? Hillel and the book of Tobit stated it in the negative. Avoid doing to others what you would not like done to you. And that's certainly good. Certainly good. Worth saying. It's consistent with the teaching of the scriptures. And so good for Hillel, good for the book of Tobit, at least in that passage. But Jesus' command to do to others, what we'd like done to us is a positive statement. And it's something to pursue rather than something negative to avoid. You see the difference here? While that may seem like a small thing to you, I think it's a big thing. Because with Jesus, it's not just about staying away from the negative. It's about pursuing the positive. And that's harder. It's more demanding if it's just about staying away from the negative, well, then you can just build yourself a hermit's hut and stay away from everyone, and you're good. But that's not at all what Jesus commands. He commands us to move toward people. He commands us to pursue doing to them what we would want them to do to us. Do you see how this is harder? Let me put it to you this way. What do you think is harder to do? Not miss a basketball shot or make one. You might be wondering, isn't that kind of the same thing? But think about it. Yesterday at our Redeemer Rangers park day, some of the teens were playing some basketball. And you know what? I didn't miss a single shot. But I didn't take one either. So I can brag about not missing a shot, but if I didn't take one, I didn't actually accomplish anything, did I? And so that's what I mean. It's harder to make a shot than just to not miss one. You can avoid saying or doing hateful things to people by just not interacting with anyone. The passage in Leviticus 19, from which we get the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, in the verses previous to, to verse 18, which we read a moment ago, that passage prohibits treating foreigners unfairly, prohibits stealing and lying to one another, prohibits oppressing the weak, it prohibits injustice and, and, and partiality, it prohibits slander and hatred towards others. But every single one of those can be avoided by just not interacting with anyone. 
And while I know that some of our more introverted or shy members thinks that sounds like it would be wonderful, it's not what Jesus calls his kingdom people to do. He calls us to actively do to others what we would want them to do to us, not simply avoid doing things that we wouldn't want done to us. Oh, my friends, can you imagine how different the world would look if people were just a little bit better at treating others how they wanted to be treated? And I'm not talking about perfection, as great as that would be and will be one day. I mean, just every person treating others the way they would want to be treated a little more often. I mean, how radically different might society look? What might it do to all the statistics regarding today's hot-button issues in the community square? How might it affect the war in Ukraine? How might it decrease the times an abortion is considered? How might it affect the number of women even put in a position to consider it? How might it affect our pursuit of ethnic harmony? How might it decrease the number of school shootings? I could go on and on and on. But how much more so if everyone's rule was to treat others the way they would want to be treated, like this golden rule? Can you imagine, friends, what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like? Everyone always loving God with all their heart, and everyone always loving one another perfectly. I'm going to see you all there, and we're just going to be nice to each other forever. <laughs> and, and just to apply this, apply this briefly to an issue we've been talking about as a church family in our E412 class, and very providentially lining up with, with what we talked about today, think about how Jesus' command affects our thinking and our speaking and our actions around the issue and the question of God's justice in society. I'd like for you to indulge me for just a moment and listen as I read a couple of quotes by a Reformation theologian, John Calvin, that just so happened to be in his commentary on this text as I read it. I'll put it on the screen for you to follow with me. This is an exhortation to his disciples to be just and contains a short and simple definition of what justice means. We are here informed that the only reason why so many quarrels exist in the world and why men inflict so many mutual injuries on each other is that they knowingly and willingly trample justice under their feet while every man rigidly demands that it shall be maintained towards himself. Where our own advantage is concerned, there is not one of us who cannot explain minutely and ingeniously what ought to be done. And since every man shows himself to be a skillful teacher of justice for his own advantage, how comes it that the same knowledge does not readily occur to him when the profit or less of another is at stake? But because we wish to be wise for ourselves only, and no man cares about his neighbor. Every man may be a rule of acting properly and justly toward his neighbor if he do to others what he requires to be done to him. These pastoral and insightful words from a Christian from centuries ago apply to both sides of the whole social justice debate. Because regardless of whatever you think about it, anything else about the path to the best solution for our nations, and indeed the world's ethnic strife, we have to all agree that if everyone just did what Jesus commanded and cared about others like they care about themselves, we'd get a lot farther, wouldn't we? 
Can you imagine what would happen if white and black image bearers of God in this country moved towards each other in love with the other's individual best interest at heart, with their perspective in mind, and with their needs and well-being as a priority? That's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. So whether you're black or white or Hispanic or Asian or rich or poor or male or female, if we all were to put the same time and energy that we put into thinking about how to defend ourselves, explain ourselves, protect our own rights, make sure our best interest is looked out for as we did for others, things would change, wouldn't they? And so that's why I say this command is harder to follow than it seems Because it's easy to look out for yourself. People do it all the time, every day, all day, by nature. That's what we do. And yes, it is hard to then avoid negatively, avoid being unloving or unkind or ungracious towards someone else. But it's way harder to pursue doing good for others that you would want done to you. And you know, my friends, the ultimate reason it's hard to love people like we love self is because we're sinners by nature. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 and listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the condition of mankind's heart, sinful heart, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, starting in verse 5. Paul commands the Colossians to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Stop there for now. Paul is saying that these sins and others like it marked the lives of those who were not yet believers in Christ at one time. Sexual immorality cares about the love of self more than about faithfulness to spouse or about a whole self for a future spouse. Passion is about doing what you feel like. Covetousness wants what it wants and is willing to do what it takes to get it. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying, none of these have the best interest of others in mind. And that's the natural state of everyone outside the kingdom of God. Without the salvation of Christ applied to a person through faith in Jesus, that is what characterizes their inner being. Paul says, in these you once walked when you were living in them. This is what characterized you before Christ. And so no wonder it's hard to love others the way we love ourselves. We've got this wickedness coursing through our veins of our nature. No wonder some white people don't want to think about black people's perspective. No wonder some black people assume the worst of white people. Just to do a very, just to reference a very hot topic. Applies all over the world. It's in our nature to think of self before we think of others. We're sinners. But there's also good news. And that's what Paul says next. So go back to the passage here in Colossians 3 and look at verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what Paul is saying is that God's chosen ones, verse 12, Christians, those who have been saved by the gift of his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, will put off that sinfulness and put on the kind of other's care that doesn't come naturally to us. But it will actually take place when you become a child of God. So friends, doing to others what you want them to do to you is possible. It's only possible through the gracious work of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul is calling the Colossians to put off those sins and put on that loving kindness to others. Because that's what it looks like to be a child of God. That's it, right there. I mean, there's other things, but here's a really, really, really clear one. It looks like kindness. It looks like compassion. It looks like love, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness. Sounds an awful lot like the fruits of the Spirit, too, from Galatians 5. So it's harder than it seems, but my friends, it is totally possible for you because of the gospel work of Jesus Christ. Because my friends, when he died on that cross, offering up his perfect life as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people and then rose from the dead, he provided us with the power to live like this through union with him. And so that's good news for you. Jesus is the way to this kind of kingdom living. And if you never have before, I invite you today to call upon Jesus and embrace him in faith and repent or turn from your sin. You will be united with him and you will grow in this way. But if you're here and you're already a Christian, perhaps you too need to repent of selfishness and then turn away from your disproportionate self-care to then turn toward Jesus and his calling on you to move towards others with the kind of love and care that you give yourself and that you want from others. Now before we finish, I have one final observation for you from this verse, and that is that it is the summary of the heart of Jesus' sermon. This little verse. My guess is that in your copy of the scriptures, verse 12 of chapter 7 starts either with a so or a therefore. Words like these are always an important clue to understanding what an author is saying. And we need to look backwards when we see those words to make sure that we see what those words are referring to. And at first glance, there doesn't appear to be an obvious connection to the verse that immediately precedes it, the passage before it regarding asking, seeking, knocking. It's certainly connected to it by nature of it being in the same record of the same sermon, but thematically, there doesn't seem to be an obvious connection. Now, some scholars suggest that this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel is a collection of sermonic sayings put into one rather than a one-time event that Jesus preached. 
and then they suggest that some of the differences or, or moments like this where you're like, how does this connect to the one before it, helps explain that. You could look at Luke's record, and you'll see some differences in order as well. That may seem to support that. At the moment, I'm personally not convinced of that. I don't really think that's necessarily where we get the answer to the question that we're asking about how this verse 12 connects to what comes before it. What's the reason for the therefore, or in my ESV, the so? Turn a page or two back to Matthew 5. And in verse 17, we see a passage that Pastor Brian preached back in February. And if you haven't heard it, I heartily recommend it to you. And I think this verse is a worthy candidate for the bookend, the other end of the bookend, to which today's passage is a pair. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what do you notice in terms of similarities between chapter 5, verse 17, and chapter 7, verse 12, thematically? It's this idea of the law and prophets. It's in both. So I think what Jesus is doing in our text for today is concluding the heart of his sermon that he began when he said, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And I think that as he concludes the heart of this sermon, he's sort of summarizing everything that came between 517 and 712. Think about it. If you're still there, you can just skim over with, uh, your, with your eyes chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. We see these, this broad opening call to embrace the kingdom of Christ and then to devote your life to it. And then in uh, verses 17 through 20, Jesus clarifies that what he's about to say isn't at all in opposition to the law, but rather it's a fulfillment. And then what does Jesus say in our text, chapter 7, verse 12? He says that doing to others what you'd want them to do to you is, at least in my ESV it says, is the law and the prophets. Now in the NIV, it says that this command sums up the law and prophets. But there's an argument to be made from Greek scholars that the word translated this way for us could be translated, and maybe in some ways ought to be translated, fulfills. In fact, the NET translates it that way. And I think the NIV does a great job by using the phrase sums up. So I think that's a startling and even crucial clue to understanding that this verse is connected to 517. Jesus said, I'm here to fulfill the law, to explain it fully, to show you what it really means, to live it out, and to teach it. And then he did in chapter 521 all the way through chapter 711. And when he finished, he said, here's the point. Do the good to others that you'd want them to do to you. And so the summary of his teaching on the hearts of murder and lust and truthfulness and meekness and generosity and love and deeds of righteousness and laying up treasures in heaven and not being judgmental is all wrapped up with a bow in one pithy, profound phrase. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's part of why I'm glad that the providence of God has led us to end here before our summer break in our Summer in Psalms series. 
in the fall. We're going to come back to this very chapter, and we're going to conclude with Jesus' concluding words. You see what's coming next. Verse 13 talks about entering by the narrow gate, then false prophets and people who he will say, I never knew you two, and then this command to build your house on the rock. These are words about staying true to Jesus' teaching, words of warning, scary warnings, and words of command and exhortation. You know, Jesus was characterized by this kind of life, wasn't he? That's, that's part of how he fulfilled the law. He washed the disciples' feet. That's doing to someone what you would want them to do to you. He healed sicknesses. He provided food and drink. All of those things were things that he needed as a man. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got dirty feet. He got tired. He got sick. And he moved towards people as a loving servant, seeking to do the good to them that he would have wanted to in his humanity. But you know, Jesus took it farther than any of us ever could. He took it all the way up Calvary's hill to a place called Golgotha where he laid down his whole life for the sake of others. He bled, he gasped, and he died. He set aside his self-care for the sake of the ultimate display of others' care. He didn't hang on to his rights as God incarnate, but set them aside for the sake of those in need of saving. And because of his saving work on the cross, all who trust in him are granted access to his kingdom. They're made his children. And now they have the power. You have the power if you are a child of God. Because of your union with him to follow this golden rule. Doing to others what they would want others to do to them. As a display and fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, graciously please grant that the truths of your word, which we have heard, may be written inwardly upon our hearts. May we be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And as we have received your word, help us to submit to it meekly, lovingly, and reverently. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Your word is a delight to us. You alone have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? And so through your word, cause us to bear the fruit of the Spirit to live in holiness and diligence following your commandments. All this I pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.